0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks so much for, for Sarah and for, for Cheryl and for Lyle as well. Yeah, this is amazing to be a part of, you know. How often do we get to do that on a Wednesday night? Not, not very often, but hopefully we get to do that more and incorporate that more into, into what's happening here. So there's a, a box in our garage a cardboard box, and it sits up high, up on a shelf. And this cardboard box that sits up high, up on the shelf, it's, uh, it's got a thin layer of dust on it. And yet, through this thin layer of dust, you can make out the inscriptions where a black sharpie inscribed Some words describing what was inside this box. And I saw this box just the other day, a box up high up on the shelf collecting dust. And I I thought to myself, you know, I should probably get to this. I should probably get to this. Well, before this cardboard box was high up on the shelf covered with a thin layer of dust, it was actually in our house and it was on top of one of our bookshelves. And there it sat throughout all the seasons, throughout all the holidays, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and New Year's and so on and so forth. And I remember just walking by it and looking up to the top of the bookshelf and seeing that box. And I thought to myself, you know what? I should probably get to this. I should probably get to this. Well, before this cardboard box was even on the top of a bookshelf or on the top of of a shelf in the garage collecting dust, it was handed to me. It was given to me from a dear friend of mine. And the contents of this box was of extreme value, precious value from a dear friend of mine. And you know what I didn't say when he gave me that box? I didn't say, you know what? I should probably get to this. No, instead, my words were, I can't wait to get to this. You know, we all have that box. We all do. Some of us keep it with us wherever we go. but Some of us also put it high up on the shelf where it collects dust. And we think, I should probably get to this. Who is Jesus in your life? Who is Jesus in your life? Is he the given to you of priceless value, kept with you but collecting dust, high up on a shelf Messiah? Which isn't really much of a Messiah after all. That's not really much of a Lord of your life. Or is is he the given to you of priceless value, kept with you, active and alive, powerful, life-giving Messiah? Well, That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We are confronted with this question, who is Jesus? How is Jesus the Messiah of my life? That's what we're going to do in the Gospel of John. We continue this week. We are at the festival of tabernacles and booths. We're going to get to that uh, in just a few moments. But if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we continue with the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We stand here to honor God. In the reading of his word. We'll begin with 731. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? In other words, Jesus has outdone himself in the miracles department already. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. That you are the miracle worker. And Lord, teach us tonight what it means to have you as Messiah in our lives. What would that look like? Where do we need to make that change? How can we make that change? Why should we make that change? I pray, Lord, you would reveal yourself to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So first things first, we've already talked about this term that may be familiar to you. It may be unfamiliar to you. And that term is Messiah. What is a Messiah after all? Well, Messiah in Hebrew, it comes from a Hebrew word, Mashiach. Now, I don't usually do this, uh, but you can say it with me because it's a fun one to say. Mashiach. Mashiach and it means anointed one or we should probably say olive oil poured on one because that's what anointing actually means. Kings were anointed ones in ancient Israel at the time of their crowning as were high priests and there's also some evidence of prophets even being anointed having olive oil just dunked on their head or or squished all over their head or even just sprinkled on their heads. They were the anointed ones. Well let's go further on to to what does Messiah mean? Because we we are realizing we're talking about Messiah in the Gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, but the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But there's something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This would have been around at the time of Jesus. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term Mashiach, Messiah, or Anointed One, gets translated as Christos, or Christ, which means, obviously, Anointed One, as it comes from the verb Meaning to anoint. Well, let's go even further with this. Messiah, Christ, anointed one, is a kingly figure whose task is to deliver, rescue, protect, and save. Now, this whole idea of pouring oil on some king's head or some prophet's head or or some high priest's head, it sounds rather strange, right? But what this does, it's a signifying mark that this person is is being set apart or consecrated for this new role or this new type of identity. Well, let's read on here in, in chapter seven, verse thirty-one. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Verse 32 says, when the Pharisees, that would be a religious group of people at the time of Jesus, who were passionate about God, but they were also passionate about the law, and sometimes those two things got out of order. When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Because after all, we just can't have this guy going around healing people, you know, giving sight to the blind and healing to the the deaf and speech to the mute, raising the paralytics, serving the poor, feeding the hungry. We can't have someone doing that. that. That would be madness, right? But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews and other lands? But the Greek would say, diaspora. Which literally would mean like the dispersion to the the Jews who are living outside of Palestine, intermixed with the Gentile people. So is, is Jesus going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. No, we're going to leave that to Paul later on. Verse 36 what does he mean when he says, You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I'm going? Well, He's talking about going to God after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. But that's kind of confusing, and they just misunderstand Jesus here. I mean, do you ever feel that way? Like, just puzzled by some of the things that Jesus says or Jesus does? Let's talk about that tonight. Let's do some table talk. Talk to the people around you. Share your ideas and address the following question here. Have you ever been puzzled by things Jesus says or does? And then, what questions do you have for Jesus? Ready, go. All right, let's finish the thought and we'll bring it back together here. Um. I think there are probably a lot of puzzling things that we come across in Scripture. I mean, after all, Scripture is like 2,000-something years old at least, and that's just the New Testament. We go back even further because we know that Jesus is not just alive in the New Testament, but obviously, whatever it says, thus says the Lord, that means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, But maybe your conversation had something to do with dinosaurs, or maybe it had to do with, like, why, why why is there pain, or why am I, you know, why am I so cool, or why am I so funny, or whatever, you know. Those are some puzzling things. But, you know, I would encourage you, wherever you're at in your life, make sure you have an outlet where you can... Read scripture and talk about God and talk about Jesus, not just with yourself, but with other people. It's great to do it by ourselves, and it's really essential that we read the Word and pray and do all that stuff on our own with God, but also in community. So maybe get involved here on Wednesday night, like you are tonight, or get involved with a Bible study. We have men's and women's Bible studies. We have high school groups. We have junior high groups. We have all sorts of kids' activities as well, where we can express these questions and maybe get realigned. So I would encourage you, it's good that you're here, and keep asking questions and then keep seeking God with the questions and asking for those answers. Uh, Let's continue on here. In verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, On the last day, the climax of the festival. Well, what festival? Let's just pause right there. What festival are we talking about? Well, we're here at the festival of tabernacles, or the festival of booths, or in Hebrew it's called the festival of sukkoth. Well, what is this? The Hebrew word sukkah is the plural of, you could pronounce this sukkah or sukkas, which I like, sukkah, <laughs> sukkah, even better, which means booth or tabernacle, which is a walled structure covered with sukkah, which is like a plant material such as overgrowth or palm leaves. Sometimes you can see there's a temple on temple, which is very, uh, in Camarillo here, it's very, Sweet, that's the temple right there. Around October time, they have the booth up. It's like this walled structure with plant material such as overgrowth or palm leaves on it. A sukkah or a sukkah is the name of a temporary dwelling in which farmers would live during the harvest time. Let's continue further with this. The festival of tabernacles, booths, or sukkah. Uh, celebrates the end of the harvest. The festival also remembers when the people were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, The, the fragile type of dwellings that they dwelt in after their exodus from Egypt during the time that they were enslaved. And so we have this event going on, this festival, but I think like the most Interesting, fascinating part about this whole festival of tabernacles or booths is something called the water rite. This would happen on the every every morning of the festival, every morning one through seven days, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They would meet early in the morning at the pool of Siloam. You might remember the Pool of Siloam because we've already talked about it in the Gospel of John. But here they would meet the high priest and all of the people and they would dip this golden pitcher, a ewer, into the Pool of Siloam, gather up water. And all the while, the people would be gathered and they would be singing out songs and reciting verses like Isaiah 55.1 and Isaiah 12.3, which read, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And then the priest would lead the people in this procession from the pool of Siloam to the temple. They would go through the water gate, to the south end of the temple, to the altar. And there they would pour from this golden pitcher into a silver basin that had a tube that would go to the base of the altar. And there they would start the morning sacrifice here at the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. And then after the water was poured, they would also pour wine. It was all sorts of symbolic things happening going on here. The wine would represent the spirit that God would pour out on the people in the later days, but the water represented the time of the people walking through the wilderness with Moses. But what was interesting is what happens here at the end of the festival. Verse 37, on the last day, The climax of the festival. We're talking day eight. Day eight when there was no water being poured out. There was no procession from the Pool of Siloam to the temple. None of that being poured out upon the altar. Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. Now that's just strange in itself. Because rabbis would sit and teach. Jesus stands up and shouts To the crowd, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Well, that sounds a lot like Isaiah, what the people had been singing, but here he's saying, Come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. He had not died yet. He hadn't been raised from the dead. But here he is claiming to be the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles right here. Well, what does this mean that he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Feast Of tabernacles, Jesus is announcing that He is the one who is providing living water. Not just physical water that you can drink when you're thirsty or when you're dehydrated, but living water, satisfying water, that He is therefore the Messiah. He's like the rock in the wilderness that Moses struck and water gushed forth and supplied the needs of the Israelites. That's who the Messiah is. Is that who Jesus is in your life and in my life? Is he the fulfillment of the feast of tabernacles here? Has he become a home inside of us, providing us with living water? Is he that spring that is bubbling up, overflowing, saturating, and satisfying you and me? Let's talk about that. Let's be honest here. Does Jesus satisfy, quench, or fulfill you? How or how not? Why or why not? Ready, go. You know, I think a lot of the times with uh, finding our satisfaction in Jesus, you guys like to talk about this. It's pretty cool. It's wonderful. I think, like, one of the things that is... uh, Bummer is that in my life, I sometimes just feel like Jesus is that box up on the shelf collecting dust. And I know that Jesus brings satisfaction. I know that Jesus quenches completely and completely fulfills. But it's like, why do I go to everything else before I go to Jesus? Like, why do I try and find fulfillment in everything else and then realize, oh, maybe I should have gone here in the first place because the fulfillment and the quenching and the satisfaction that Jesus brings is eternal, and it's long-lasting. It's not like everything else, which is not. You know, and I realize that, man, when I spend quality time with God, when I just am having one-on-one, whether I'm, like, reading or praying or journaling or serving or whatever it may be, like, There's never a time where I'm like, that was wasted time. It never happens, right? But I can watch TV and be like, "Ah, I just killed like nine hours right there. Uh, You know, Netflix, just binging. "Ah, I finished the season or three, but you know, it's like my eyes hurt, and I don't do that. But uh, I know, I know some of you guys might struggle with that. So I was trying to be vulnerable. not nine hours. That, That would be terrible. But, you know, even after, like, in high school, I realized this early on. Like, all right, well, I could go play video games and kill, like, a good three hours. Or I could actually do something different. Whatever it may be. Homework, for instance. And then the video games could be there. The homework will not be there. But, uh, One thing that's interesting, if you answered that, yeah, Jesus, like, quenches my thirst. He satisfies me. He fulfills me. Then why are we trying to find fulfillment and affirmation in other things not of him? Like, oh, man, I only got three likes on that post, so I feel terrible. No one loves me or anything like that. Well, who cares? Because Jesus does, right? If we're truly seeking satisfaction and fulfillment and quenching in Jesus, then nothing else from anybody else Even matters, and I think that the disciples and the apostles understood that. That, That's what led them to be so bold and so brave. So we should be the people who find our fulfillment and satisfaction and quenching in Him alone. Man, I read the prayer requests. One more thing, and I'll get back to this. Uh, I read the prayer requests, and there, there's one on there. It's on there all the time, where it's like. I just want a husband who can, you know, treat me well and, and be the kind of man I want who can complete me. I'm like, no, that's wrong right there because you're putting so much pressure on that guy to complete you, you know? And I, I'm, was it wasn't yours? I, then it's multiple people. It's multiple people. Was it really yours? Oh. But what I'm saying is that there's nothing wrong to have a helper. There's nothing wrong with having someone to help you through that process, but to depend on that person as your fulfillment and as your satisfaction, good luck. That's too much pressure. Too much pressure. Anyways, back to the scripture. I don't know where that came from. Sorry, Ashley. I wasn't calling you out, though. There must be another person. Verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, all this stuff about Jesus being the Messiah, when they heard him say this, some of them declared, "'Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting.' Others said, "'He is the Messiah.'" There's this spiral of understanding of who Jesus is. We saw this back in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. She's like, oh, Jesus, I see you're like a man of God. Oh, Jesus, now I see that you're a prophet. Oh, Jesus, now I see that you are the Messiah. There's this spiral of understanding of getting to know Jesus more. And here they come to the conclusion, at least some of them, that he is the Messiah, that he's the anointed Savior, King. Still others said... But he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. Obviously, they didn't have the birth certificate for Jesus. But the birth certificate wouldn't have read that he was born in Bethlehem Memorial Hospital or urgent care of Judea. It would have read something like, born in a stable in Bethlehem born in a feeding trough, in a cave in Bethlehem. But they didn't have his birth record here. So the crowd, verse 43, was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45 says, When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded, and you can just imagine the Pharisees just ripping out their beards. Have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisee who believes in him? And in the back, you see Nicodemus (laughs) kind of doing that that little shy hand raise, right, halfway. Like, I kind of do, This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the one with the little shy hand raised there in the back, the one who came to Jesus in chapter 3 to visit him at night in the dark there. He's the leader who met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asked? He stands up for Jesus in the middle of all of his peers. That takes a lot of nerve, a lot of guts to do that. And they replied very nicely right here, right? Very kind, gently. No. Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Well, this one does. He was born in Bethlehem, but he came from Galilee. Then the meeting broke up and everyone went home. This one comes from Galilee and he's changing the world. But the question is, is this Messiah changing your world? Is he changing my world? It's easy to say, yeah, Jesus saves and he is the ruler and he reigns. And, you know, what a beautiful name it is. And, you know, there's no place I'd rather be all the songs we were singing. But when it comes down to it, is yeah, we know Jesus changed the world, but is he actually changing my world and how I view things and how I speak and how I act, not just in front of my Christian brothers and sisters, not just in front of my family members or my relatives or whoever it may be, but when no one's watching, is Jesus really changing my world? Some takeaway tonight for us. Last thought as we close. Jesus is the Messiah, anointed Savior King. But how am I making Jesus the Messiah of my life? How am I crowning him as king? Like what does that look like? We talked about on Sunday how we need to just get out of the way and let God do his thing, right? And many of us need to do that. And that's a 24-hour our thing. We just start each new day, get out of the way, and let God take control. But how do we actually do that? Like, I think that means we pause, we pray, we start the day off right, we're in community. We're allowing him to be the ruler, the leader, the Messiah, the anointed king of our lives to save us from those situations where we doubt, where we fear, where we Have no courage. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the anointed king, that you are the savior of the world, that you're the savior of our lives. But I pray, Lord, that we would make you the Messiah of our lives, that our thoughts would be guided by your word, that we wouldn't be afraid to ask you questions or ask people questions, I pray that you would involve us in different groups and different circles of people where we can learn and grow and change and mature. Because Lord, sometimes we just get stagnant. We just plateau. We get stuck in routines and we're not really growing or sometimes we just don't even see ourselves that we really are growing. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take small steps of faith Because we know that looking back, you're going to lead us into the places we never thought we could go. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Send us out with fire, with boldness, with courage to allow you to to reign and rule in our lives. Because you are the king of the world. And Lord, help us to take back Take back any ground that has been given up to darkness. Let your light shine. That we would you be your people, the city on a hill, the light of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.